Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Rob Daisley. Rob is the owner and managing director of Designs Signage Solutions Limited, a whole-based signage and branding expert. Rob, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure having you, Rob, and the purpose of this uh, discussion is to establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation just for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, Leadership for me is... I think the key elements to leadership are inspiration, growth, and mentorship, really. I think they're the sort of cornerstones of, of, of being a good leader. Um, yeah. I think you're absolutely right in that you say there's a need for leaders to be able to inspire and really take people with them. I think that's completely right. Talking about inspiration just for a moment, Rob, who would you say you've been some of the biggest inspirations and perhaps influences on you throughout your career? Is there anybody that you've ever really looked up to in that sense? Uh, I've had many people uh, that have given me inspiration, um, both locally, nationally, um, as as business people. Uh, I've, I've took a lot of inspiration from books. uh, And yeah, I've had some, I've had some really good learning practices to help me on my journey, you know, through, for reading, I think reading is a good part because you see many different angles as well. And there's some great podcasts out there as well, which give you different views on on leadership. I mean, a, a big thing for me is that you know is it, it, is about failure as well. I think failure is a, is a good point where you know to embrace failure um, because that's how you learn. We can't really hope to learn without failure, can we? And I think among younger generations especially, there's a little bit of a fear of failure, almost for fear of disappointing people and maybe a fear of criticism. And that's something that we really need to be encouraging people to embrace, as you rightfully say there, because without it, we can't really hope to develop in a way, can we? No, I mean, it's it's funny you say that because, I mean, that's one thing we do in, in our business is we, it sounds strange, but we embrace failure. Um, and for the reasons that you've just said, I think, you know, people, the younger generations now are, are scared of scared of falling and, and scared of, 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 of getting things wrong. And, and I think for me, it's embrace it. You've got to, everybody makes mistakes. Um, and that's the only way you learn, as I said earlier, is if, if you make a mistake is learn from it, move forward and, you know, try not to make it again. Um, and through leadership in our business, you know, we get people in our management team and right through the business where, you know, they have ideas and you do see, you, you know, I do see the wrong in, in, and I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'll let them try and I'll let them do it mm. uh, because that's all they've got to learn. And, and, and that's, you've, you've got to sort of let the reins go and let these people, you know, take the stabilizers off if you like, you know, let, let, let people try and fail on their own accord. Yeah, go beyond their comfort zones, maybe take on their own form of leadership in a way, isn't it? Because that's how ultimately you empower people and you can encourage them to develop absolutely right. And we also talked about um, the learnings from other people as well, um, especially in your case, uh, Rob. You've read a lot of literature, of course, from various uh, leaders out there. And that's important as well, especially, again, for younger people looking to make it in business and maybe starting out a business of their own. Because 
you aren't a lone wolf as a leader, are you? It's about the team of people around you and you can learn from others who've really been there, done that, had the experience and sort of look at aspects of leadership that maybe worked for them and maybe didn't work them as well. And you can use that to really influence your own style, can't you? That's another really, really good way of being able to learn. Yeah, I mean, locally, there's a good there's a good group. Um, there's a few organisations within our area in, uh, in East Yorkshire where what it does is it's for business owners, it's entrepreneurs, uh, and you basically it, it, you get around people in, in the same situation as, as yourselves and, and have the same challenges that you do. Um, you know, you've got people within your business, but they don't fully understand um, exactly the full extent of it. I mean, the, the, the term used is, you know, have you got skin in the game? You know, what have you got? You know, what have you got on the line? And and I think it's good to be around other entrepreneurs and business owners. Where you can have these discussions um, and challenge each other, you know, on on what you're doing right and and, and wrong, and, and you know, if you've got if you if you're looking to do something within your business, it's good to sort of move it around other people because it is lonely. It is lonely as a business leader, and also um, it's important as a business leader to pick very carefully the uh, the people around you. Um, Nelson Mandela once said, actually, surround yourself with people who are better than you because it's just as much Definitely. about those around you getting the best out of you as their leader as well as vice versa, isn't it? Because um, a lot of people who you can pick to be around you are people who can be mentor figures and they can indeed be very influential. Yeah, I mean, again, it's something I'm not afraid of. I, you know, I embrace people who are better than me um, and it doesn't worry me. And I've had people in my teams over the years where, they are scared. They're scared of people coming in that are better than them, um, and and they don't embrace it. And I think you need to. You know, I, I have my skill sets, and I know what they are. But there's people within this business that are very, very good, and a lot better than me in, in many areas. But I'm okay with that um, because, it, it, like you say, it's empowerment, it's inspiration, it's growth and mentorship. For these people, what my skill set is, that's what I you know I offer them and help to them grow. And then you get you know as generations come in. You get, you know, I've been in business 27 years and you get the younger generations coming through with things that, I, you know, I don't fully understand. Um, and it's good to learn from them as well. You know, I'm, I'm far from the finished article and the world's forever changing. Mm. We're never a finished article, are we? It is a process of constant development, um, I think, for sure. And if we think about that idea for a minute, uh, Rob, would you say that good leaders are maybe born that way? Or do you think that good leaders are made and developed? I think there's an element. I think I think there's an element there of, of sort of born leadership. Uh, I think it can be taught, uh, and I think it can be guarded. I, I would say you do have to have that element. But then again, there's people that I've come across that you know would openly admit they didn't start off that well um, in that form, but they've created to be great leaders. I think it's it's a natural instinct that you have. Some people have, um, which is a benefit. But I think it, I think it can be taught. I think it can. I think you can get people. They can understand and they can see the, the benefits as a business owner uh, and as a team member within within the operation. Now, but correct. that's down to that, but sorry, that's down to that is your mentorship, isn't it? That's what mentorship's about. Exactly, and mentors can certainly be some of the most influential leaders out there, as can the people closest to us as well, because when you ask a lot of people who their biggest inspirations are, some of them will say people like their parents, people like their colleagues, um, people managers maybe that they've uh, worked with. That's mm. really important as well, isn't it, to recognise that these people are important as leaders and maybe to celebrate them just as much as we celebrate maybe sports personalities, politicians, um, etc., for their achievements as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, but I mean that sort of goes back to your previous question of you know our leaders born. Some people come in and you know the environment that they've been brought up in, and maybe they're maybe not from that environment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they're not a leader. Uh, it's just sort of unlocking that that talent within them, really. Um, you know, it depends what upbringing you've had and, and the circles that you've moved in. Um, so you don't, you maybe not recognised as a leader or an entrepreneur, or it, it, it comes in later, later, later life, really, when someone else sees that within you. And leadership takes many different forms as well. It's not always about being at the head of a business and sticking your head above the parapet, as it were. You can just be as good as a leader, but be very, very quiet, reserved, and just get on with business behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, in, in my business, uh, I've always pushed the business and not myself. Um, I, I, you know, I don't often do things like this, if, if I'm totally honest with you. And the business is not about my name. The business is the business. And that's what gets pushed before me. Uh, you know, as the leader, uh, the, the business is a priority. And the business is built where people want to talk, you know, they, they don't need to speak to me in the early stages. They didn't feel the need to talk to me all the time for me to resolve their issues and, do, and, and deal with what they needed. It was quite happy to go to the team. Uh, and we have some customers within our business who don't know me, but that's good for me because it, it, that show, it shows strength in the team. Mm, it really does. I would certainly agree with that. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, uh, Rob, but I, I believe that, of course, the design signage solutions business dates back to the early 90s. And it was a sole trader at that point before you built that team around you. Um, if you could go back then and maybe do anything differently based upon the experience that you have now, is there anything that you would change or would you just embrace that journey that you've already been on? Uh, I embrace the journey, if I'm honest, because it goes back to, to what I'm saying about failure. Is I've, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, um, and with some of them, have sort of moved the business to where it is today. Because so I have, I have no regrets on anything I'm doing. I wouldn't particularly change anything. I've took things quite slowly, and over the time, you know, we've had some pretty substantial bumps in the road, if you like, over the last 27 years. You know, there's a lot of things happened, you know, and currently, obviously, this is a very big bump in the road. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> there's been many more before this, and we've, and it's just a case of, you know, grit and determination and, and having, you know, having a positive outlook and dealing with it. Uh, and it's all, like you say, it's all learning. It's, it's all learning. And, and, yeah, again, you've got to embrace it. I think you're right in saying that this current COVID-19 situation for certain has been a substantial learning curve for businesses. And if we think about the future and what this new normal people are talking about is really going to look like, Rob, before we do wrap things up, what do you envision for the next year for both yourself and for the uh, the business? And what do you hope to achieve as we do move through this COVID situation, hopefully emerge from the other side and then really begin to focus on the long-term future? I mean, for me is. I adapted quite quickly to, to the situation in, within the business, uh, and as I said, I, you know, I look for the positive, and it, it, it's been good for the business in, 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 in many ways. Really, a big point for me was it gave me stillness in the business where I could sit and I could look at things properly, and I went through the business in in the quiet time of, of the fine tooth comb, really, and and it gave me that chance to look at things and sort of freeze for a little bit and understand how my business operated and where things was, was sort of going wrong. So going forward, it, it gave, you know, it's, it's let me sort of polish the machine, if you like, and, and, you know, go right through things in detail. And I think going over the next 12, 18 months, these changes that will be made in our process and, and our operation 
will strengthen us going forward. Um, and it's also gave us, you know, it's it strengthened relationships, our suppliers and our customers, uh, you know, all across because you've pulled together, everybody's pulled together and, and worked their way through, you know, this, and it, it's far from over. Um, but I, I have a positive outlook. You've got to, you know, you've got to be positive in what you're doing. Or, and, you know, how do you evolve? And, and I think it's a, it's been a steep learning curve, but a good one, you know, in many ways. So going forward, I think business will slowly recover over the time. Uh, it, will it get back quickly? I doubt it very much, but it will come back. It, we will get back to where we was. Uh, and in my business particularly, I think we'll have a lot better uh, operation and a lot better business um, because we've seen, you know, back the main thing of leadership is I've seen some great leadership within the team that I have in these difficult times. People have put, really pulled together. And, um, yeah, it's, it's got its benefits. You often hear it said, don't you, that times of adversity really do bring out the best in people and sort of separate the men from the boys in a sense. And we've really seen that. We've really seen people step up to the plate and we've had some fantastic stories of people going above and beyond to keep things ticking over during this difficult time. And you're right as well in the sense that even though it's been a very challenging and a very tragic time, there will be some positives to come out of the fact that it's forced the hand of businesses to innovate and really sort of review how they're providing their services and it will be beneficial in the uh, the long run i think that's very very right and um, it's a shame we're just about out of time on the program rob or i'm sure we could talk about um this issue um, all morning but i think you know given how informative it's been today once we do understand over the next few months what that new normal will be it would actually be great to have you back on the program with us just to catch up and see if anything has changed and discuss exactly what that new normal does look like from a listener's perspective i think that'd be absolutely fantastic yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm more than happy to come back on and, and, and talk fairly with you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise for myself as well, Rob. Um, it has been a real pleasure having you on the air with us this morning. And do take care and do stay safe, most importantly, in the meantime, because as we all know, we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Mm. Thank you. That was Rob Daisley speaking, owner and managing director of Designs Signage Solutions Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as England captain, he became one of only three skippers to have secured the Ashes title both at home and away in Australia. He also became the England skipper with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with him that is coming up next hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd, broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later... Uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything will be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.